Thank you for listening to the podcast for Icon Church, where we believe all people are icons of the invisible God, made in his image to reflect his glory and grace. For more information, go to iconchurch.org. Welcome again to Icon. Uh, we are continuing in a uh, series in 1 Corinthians that we started in March. We'll end uh, in September, or beginning of September, end of August. Um, But we have broken it up into these little mini sections, and we just finished, last week, just finished uh, a series that was uh, called Gospel-Formed Relationships, where we talked about sexuality and singleness and marriage and uh, a bunch of fun stuff uh, on that. If you missed that or missed any one of those, we do, I wanted to mention, have podcasts up and running. Uh, If you go to our website, uh, you can see the sermons on there, and uh, and so you can kind of keep up that way if... Uh, if that's interesting to you. Um, we are making a transition now into these next couple of chapters, chapters 8, 9, and 10 uh, in 1 Corinthians, and uh, we're kind of gospel-formed freedom. Uh, the, the big, the big uh, kind of meta-theme for this whole series is gospel-formed church, and, uh, and the idea behind it is not that we want to become like the Corinthians because uh, if you've been with us for any amount of time, you realize they're terrible. Um, and so we're not trying to become like the Corinthians, but we are trying to be shaped by the gospel the way Paul uh, is trying to shape the Corinthian church by the gospel. So all of these different issues of sexuality and singleness and marriage and all the craziness that they have experienced so far, uh, Paul continually reorients them back to kind of having a gospel-formed vision uh, for each of these different issues. And so for us, like that's our hope. So if you're new to ICON, um, our desire is that we would be formed and shaped by the gospel in everything that we do, um, that we would see our lives and everything and everybody and every activity around us through the lens of the gospel, kind of understand it that way, respond to it that way, and just continually be shaped and formed. Well, what we know about being shaped and formed uh, and, and, uh, and kind of uh, I visualize uh, someone who is like shaping wood or stone or something they're chipping away at or shaving things off of it um, is, uh, and, and, and I say this completely ignorant to uh, that whole process, right? Like I've seen it in movies uh, is probably the closest I've come to this idea. Um, but um, what I've always thought about it is one, it's slow. Like the process of shaping a thing is slow. It is, uh, it's gradual and incremental. So each different kind of chip and shave takes just a tiny bit off. Um, I've also noticed that um, when, the, uh, when the block of wood or block of stone sits there at the beginning, it, it is only in the mind of the artist what it will become. Right. If you if you watch like a, a fast motion video of of this process, when the lump is there, the the observer has no idea what it's going to become. But the artist does. Artist has a vision for what they're doing, and so every little shape, every shave, every chip has a purpose to it. Right. And it's slowly shaping the person or the thing into uh, what the artist's intention was for it. 
And so as that process you know, kind of plays out, it begins to take a recognizable shape and then gets down into the details and the features and all of these kinds of things. So I've noticed that, that it's incremental. And I think that that is also jives with our experience of the Christian life. Um, and it doesn't always meet expectations. Sometimes we have this sense that like, gosh, big things should be happening all the time and I should be done with this and solve this problem and victorious over this issue. And that's just not, that's just kind of not how life works, right? Like it's a process and it's incremental and it's slow and God, the artist, is working on us kind of at his pace. But the, the big thing that I've noticed, and this kind of ties into our section tonight, is I, I had this thought one time when I was watching an artist do this thing, and I thought, you know, the artist has his intention or her intention as to what they're doing. The observer, those of us who see the process, go, oh, okay, I know what's happening here. The artist is doing their thing. Um, but the one that's ignorant to it is the wood, Right, like the character in the story that's kind of ignorant to what's happening is the wood or the rock. And I, you know, thinking kind of if you could personify the wood in this illustration, like the wood would only see uh, the artist as an enemy, right? Like, because it hurts. I would imagine from the wood's perspective, the wood's going like, who is this guy? And I hate him, right? Like this, I don't know what he's doing. I don't know why he's hurting me every, every little chip, every little shave. Uh, there's not a, a, a kind of a, a con- cognitive awareness of what's happening. And, and yet, like the purpose of the artist will eventually kind of be made known. And if such a thing were possible, that that wood at the end of the day would go, oh yeah, I'd much prefer to be this beautiful kind of artistic piece than the lump of wood I was at the beginning, but the process is painful, right? I guess is what I'm trying to say and could have just said that. Um, the, the last series uh, uh, about sexuality and marriage and singleness is, is kind of painful in obvious ways. I think that this next uh, series of messages is going to be painful in, in maybe less obvious ways, uh, but it will be no less painful, no less uh, sacrificial, require no less sacrifice on our part as we think about um, our freedom and what a gospel-formed vision of freedom might be. And I think this is an an entirely appropriate time to be talking about these things, not just in our culture, but, uh, you know, even even just very much kind of of the moment. Um, As we are at a national level, at a local level, talking about rights a lot. Uh, civil rights, human rights, uh, gay rights, abortion rights. I mean, these are, these are massively hot topics in our culture right now. And uh, they were being dealt with, and different versions of it were being dealt with here in Corinth that Paul is writing to them about. And we're going to talk about it kind of from a, a several different angles over the course of the next uh, four weeks. Um, but where we're going to start is kind of a, a fundamental uh, kind of perspective on the role of rights in a Christian's life. Okay, and that's what we're going to talk about here um, this evening. And so let's just jump in. First Corinthians chapter 8. If you'll remember, um, the last thing Paul was talking about was married people and if a wife's husband died. This is kind of, uh, I don't know, funny to me. In verse 40 of chapter 7, he says, Yet in my judgment, she, the uh, widow, widow, uh, is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. And, and Paul, the master of transitions, goes, Now, concerning food offered to idols, <laughs> like, what? 
That's a terrible transition. Um, but uh, this was the issue that was going on uh, in the church. And, and, and what we've already seen a bunch of times is uh, that the church in Corinth had written to Paul asking for advice on a number of different issues. And so this is one of them. Every time uh, you read him say, now concerning, and then some issue, this is Paul addressing uh, some question that they had. And w- what's going on here in, in the original context is that, and we've talked about this uh, related to sexuality, um, that a lot of the uh, pagan gods uh, of the time in Corinth, um, the, the method of worship was animal sacrifice. And uh, in, in this time and place, there was uh, quite a bit of crossover between uh, religious life and kind of civic life and political life and social life. So it was not uncommon for a, uh, an animal to be sacrificed in the temple for spiritual reasons, for kind of religious reasons, um, and then for the priests to then take the remaining parts of the animal and either slaughter it and sell it in the marketplace or use it as, you know, oftentimes these temples, and we'll see this in uh, chapter 10. Um, a lot of times these temples hosted kind of civic dinners or social club kind of dinners, and the meat that had been sacrificed to idols would be used and kind of served as like, uh, you know, for some sort of club, a private club that's having an event uh, in their temple. It all sounds very strange, and it probably was. Um, But the question came up, as you have all of these people now who were pagan idolaters, in in their language, were pagan idolaters and are now Christians and are asking the question, can we eat that food? Like, are we allowed to eat the food that was sacrificed to idols? And now, um, this is not an issue that we deal with today, I, I hope. Uh, that you haven't found some pagan idol worship to be involved with. But if you had, we should chat. Um, But what Paul's going to get at here is a much more kind of profound, deeper level issue once he sorts through the the specifics of what they're dealing with. So try not to get lost in the specifics and, and be able to get down to the core ideas here of our rights and freedoms. Okay? One more introductory thought. One of the things that we've seen play out in this church already a couple times, especially around sexuality, is that there are two kind of factions uh, in the church, or at least kind of two poles um, that, are, uh, that are kind of approaching each of these issues different. So if you remember, um, there is a kind of libertine, uh, liberal end of the spectrum where, for example, they had a man who was sleeping with his father's wife, and there was a group of people kind of approving that, being like, great, yeah, we're super open-minded, that's good idea. Um, And there was another group of people going, no, that's gross. Like, don't do that, which we would all go, yeah, we're on that side. Um, But there, so this has played out a number of different times and it will play out here as well. So he's going to speak to, Paul is going to speak to first, those who would kind of uh, say, hey, we can, we can do whatever we want. And there's kind of liberty and freedom in this. And then he will also speak to those who would kind of restrict that behavior. Um, And in a similar way that he's done uh, over and over already is going to bring both of them back to the gospel. So we've mentioned before how the scripture's ability to offend everyone always is, is like one of my favorite things about it. And, uh, and this is Paul kind of at his best doing that. So there's my introduction. Now concerning food offered to idols. We know that, in quotes, all of us possess knowledge. This scare quote, knowledge 
puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So Paul is going to first go after um, what we would kind of consider the, the libertine end of the spectrum in Corinth. Apparently, they had written to Paul saying, of course we can eat meat sacrificed to idols because we know that isn't, there's no such thing as an idol and this is ridiculous and all of these people that are getting all hung up on idols are just dumb and uninformed and in this context, probably poor and just they're uh, you know, not well educated and they just don't understand. We have the knowledge to understand the situation better and so obviously we should be able to eat whatever food we want to do. Paul's response to them with thick sarcasm. I think, and, and I, it's sad to me, I think sometimes we miss Paul's sarcasm, and, and, and so we really misunderstand Paul. He is very much making fun of these people, and so I want you to hear that in Paul, that, that Paul, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is mocking these people, okay? Feel that. He says, we know that, quote, all of us possess knowledge, but this knowledge puffs up, love builds up. And I love this line. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Like, if, if what you're telling me is your knowledge, that you know so much, and that your knowledge is, is kind of in, in this, like, kind of pedantic, kind of looking down on the other people kind of way, going like, we get it, they don't get it, but we get it. Paul goes, if that's your perspective and that's the knowledge you have, you know nothing, right? You know nothing. Now, this is Paul's rebuke to the kind of libertine end of the Corinthian church. To say, this, this knowledge that you think you have, you are utilizing in the exact opposite way that you ought to be utilizing it. Yes, you have knowledge. Yes, you have an awareness. Yes, you have maturity. Yes, you have education. But the fact that you would use it to look down upon these other people who don't know what you know, it completely undermines the purpose of it. Because this kind of knowledge has puffed you up or made you arrogant when just a little bit of love in the midst of it would actually build up the people around you and instead you have kind of arrogantly looked down on them. So first, he goes after the kind of libertine end. But he's got some for the other side. Verse four, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. Again, quoting this letter from the Corinthians, that, uh, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now, here's what Paul does. And this is important. I want us to hear this. Because the truth of the matter is, and this is sometimes my struggle with passages like this, that because of who we are here in Seattle, specifically Capitol Hill, uh, and, 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 and us demographically and culturally, we would probably land many of us, I don't know y'all and I don't know a lot about all of you, but I think many of us would probably land on the educated, wealthy, knowledge end of things, 
that maybe are a bit more on the kind of culturally liberal side of things where we don't, we're not you know, teetotalers and we're not super strict about a lot of things like media and all of this. I think most of us, most that I meet, land more on this end of the spectrum. And so for him to go after the kind of restrictors, which is kind of how I think about this is like the libertines and the restrictors, those who would say, no, no, no. Remember um, a couple weeks ago, he, he quoted them saying, a man should not have sex with a woman. And then it's like, no, 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 that's not, that ain't right. But was quoting kind of their perspective on the thing that he to them kind of goes after them, but notice how he goes after each group. This is important for us because I think we land more on this side. For those on the better educated, kind of more prosperous side, he mocks, rebukes them, and on this side, he teaches, which is, again, kind of another rebuke of these folks because he's basically going like, your perspective has been, hey, we've got the knowledge, we'll make the rules, just come and we'll tell you, yes, you're fine, just eat idols, or eat food sacrificed to idols. Maybe eat the idols too. Um, but instead, Paul goes, no, listen, there, the food sacrifice to idols, we know that there's no idols. We, we know that those idols are not gods. We know that there's only one God. Even though there's many gods and many lords, we know that there's only one true God. And we know that all things exist for him and through him and his son, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were made and for whom all things were made. Like this is, the, this is he's demonstrating for them the perspective that they ought to have had to just teach humbly, teach the people. So he's doing it for them and saying, listen, um, those of you who would restrict the eating of food to idols, you gotta know Hey, they aren't a thing. Like, idols aren't a thing. They, that, that's not a problem because there is no such thing as a God. So it's just a kind of a vain uh, religious practice. It's not meaningful in any way. And let's not forget the truth of the gospel, the truth of the fact that we serve the only one true God. And is, is pushing this side of the aisle towards a kind of uh, an understanding of their theology, but then an application of it but does so in a much more gentle, kind of uh, teacher-y kind of way than those folks have done it. So what does Paul do? He enters into this issue, um, confronts and rebukes one group, confronts by teaching and informing and, and kind of reorienting back to the truth of our theology on the other side. And then the most important word in this whole passage is next, he says... However, and this is where kind of the rubber hits the road with the application of our theology. He goes, yeah, listen, we know that this is true. We know that this is true, but we live in the real world. So he says, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So just listen. Yes, we know that food sacrifice to idols is just food. 
Eating food doesn't make us, doesn't commend us to God, doesn't improve our relationship with God. Not eating food doesn't improve our relationship with God. It, it's, it's not the point. Because there are some people who, and, and probably those people who spent the majority of their lives doing these religious practices where they would go with their family to the temple and, and sacrifice an animal and then go back for dinner there and eat this food and it was meaningful to them. And maybe they spent 10, 20, 30, 40 years of their lives doing this religious practice so much so that when they get saved and join the Corinthian church, that when this question becomes like a kind of a philosophical question, it, it kind of, I don't want to use the word triggers, but it like, it brings up a bunch of stuff for them. They go, oh, but I just, gosh, I just got saved out of that. Like I've been doing that for 40 years and my whole life and generations and that's what, I, that's what I did do and it leads to death and I, it hurt me and it hurt my family and now I'm a Christian so I've put all that behind me but now that I'm a Christian, I'm seeing that all these other Christians are doing that thing that I just got saved out of. So I, just, I, I, gotta, I don't get it. Like that doesn't make sense to me and probably as we know, when we first kind of convert to Christianity or become saved or whatever language we want to put on, our, our faith is fragile. It's really fragile. We have more doubts than we do beliefs at the beginning. Some of us still have more doubts than we do beliefs. And so to step back into a world that they had just been convinced was you know, evil and bad and, and needed to be saved out of, to step back into that world, but to do so with a different perspective, it, that's a hard thing to do. So what I want us to see here is Paul says, yes, like theologically, this is what the truth is. The truth is that this food sacrifice to idols means nothing. And you were, you were, even those of you who were doing it for 40 years, you were just doing kind of a vain, empty, hollow, religious thing. But it didn't have meaning because the, the meat was just meat and the idols are just statues and it's not real. However, let's talk about people now. And we're, we're dealing with real people. We're not dealing with abstract theological problems. We're dealing with real people. So there's two things I want us to get from this section. One... God always gives responsibility to the strong to take care of the weak. God always gives the responsibility to the strong to take care of the weak. And we've seen this in, in a bunch of different contexts already. And if we kind of did a biblical theology, this would see God continually asking the theologically and spiritually strong to take care of and disciple the theologically and spiritually weak. We've seen God ask the economically strong to take care of the economically weak. We've seen God uh, ask those who are, uh, have strength politically or socially or whatever the case may be, whatever the category is, always the responsibility is put on the strong to care for the weak. Now, why? And this is an example of us needing to kind of play out our theology all the way down. What makes you strong or weak but the will of God? Like that's not something you did. We talked about this some time ago when we were talking about sexuality and, and what you know, Paul said just a few chapters ago, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. But not only were you bought with a price, but you were made 
that nothing that's meaningful about you is, is something that you can take credit for. God made you. So if you are strong, it's because God made you strong. And if you are weak, it's because God made you weak. Therefore, those who are strong and been given the responsibility can't say, but, but, but I, I didn't, you know, like I've earned this. I've, I've made my way. I've pulled myself up. No, you haven't. Like, no, you haven't. We, and, and we've built this argument in the last couple of weeks that God has given some strength and power economically, socially, politically, spiritually and asked them to bear the burden for those who are weak. So that's the first thing. Second thing is this. Those who are weak and, and I, you have to picture this being read, right? So Paul writes this letter to the church in Corinth and the elders in Corinth open this, you know, I don't know, scroll, camel skin, and, uh, and, and begin to read it. And everybody knows who's who in this story, right? Like when Paul air quotes, you know, all of us possess knowledge. They're like, yeah, Steve wrote that. You know, like they know. And they know which kind of which groups and which factions have been arguing uh, that we can't eat meat and which groups have been arguing that you can eat meat. And so when Paul says, well, of course you can eat meat, those people are like, yeah, we told you. And these people are like, but, you know, and then Paul flips it on them and they're happy and these guys are sad. Everybody knows what's happening. And what Paul just, Paul just used a word that is a hard word for us to kind of get our heads around, and that word is weak. And I actually did work on this word to figure out, is there, is this have a different context, a different connotation? Because this is kind of a, I don't know, it's, it, it, it makes me feel uncomfortable. And I looked it up, and this word in the Greek that we translate weak actually means like not strong. It's weak, okay. <laughs> Gosh, you guys. The point is, I, did, I wanted it to mean something different, and it doesn't. And I started to wrestle with that and figure out, like why, like, why does that bother me, and what does that mean? Why would Paul use a word that almost no one would go, yeah, that's me, I'm, I'm one of the weak ones. Like, no one self-nominates that. And part of me thinks that's the point. Right, like that those who are strong are given the burden of responsibility for those who are weak. And I think that those who are weak are given the responsibility to just humble themselves and say, yeah, I need you. Because there's, there's something very difficult about that. That in, in a conversation like this one, it's much easier to claim your rights or to demand that the strong take responsibility for you. He said, you should see, Paul said, you should do this. Paul said, you should care. That's different than saying, actually, I need you. And if you don't do this for me, I don't know if I can do this on my own. I have a friend, um, named Brian, and uh, me and him were uh, on a hike one time, and we were doing this loop. 
and uh, and we were we were just kind of walk walk jogging, and uh, and as we were on this loop, this uh, woman passed us three or four times, and uh, on one of those third or fourth time, I made some comment like, "Man, you're making us look bad," or something like that, and uh, and you know whatever everybody courtesy laughed for me, and, uh, and we went on with our day. And um, later that night, he and I were having dinner, and uh, he said, hey, why did, you, why did you flirt with that girl? And I said, I, I am not sure what you're talking about, uh, Brian. And uh, he goes, yeah, we're on the trail and this. And, and, I, and I said, when I, when I said uh, she was making this look bad, he's like, yeah, why, why were you flirting with her? You're married. And, and my first response to that, to that comment was, you've got to be kidding me. Like, I can do way better than that. <laughs> no, but honestly, my, 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 my first response was, like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, that, how, how, how does that bother you? How, did that, how does that count as flirting? I was just given, I, I don't know, I was just making a comment. That was my first response of, like, that's ridiculous, and, I, and then I remembered quickly enough to not put my foot in my mouth, remembered that um, Brian's, uh, Brian has significant weakness in areas of sexuality and has, has a, 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 an incredibly painful story that has caused him to have to put very strong limitations on his lifestyle. And so in that moment, when I made that comment to this girl that to me was just kind of an inane comment, I, I was in a sense violating his conscience. I was creating a situation that he felt like he couldn't overcome. Like he couldn't, he couldn't just make a comment like that and have it mean nothing. That his story and all that he's been through, that comment had, has meaning behind it, has purpose and has hopes and passion and pursuit. And, and it's kind of forever, that moment, that story, and I, and I had to repent to him and go, dude, you know what? I, I'm sorry. I did, not, I did not love you in that moment. And that scene, my, again, my first response was, give me a break. But then I realized this is exactly what Paul's talking about here. Was I trying to flirt with that girl? No. But was I prioritizing my desire to get a laugh over his needs for me as a friend to, to support him in his weakness? Yes. So I, I think Paul here is trying to make two points. One is the strong have a responsibility given to them by God to take care of the weak. I tell my son this. He, he knows if I, if I tell him, why did God make you? What is your purpose in the world? He says, to love, care for, and protect. That's, that's the purpose that God has, has put him on the earth to love, care for, and protect. So anytime he hurts his sisters, which is like hourly, I, I, I kind of reorient him back to that purpose and say, Cole, what is your purpose in the world? To love, care for, and protect, right? Yes. Did, is that what you did? No. Okay, so now what do I have to do? I have to protect your sisters from their protector. God's given us that responsibility to love, care for, and protect those people around us. 
And it is equally the responsibility of us who are weak. And it's, this is not a, a question of ultimate categories or are you one of the strong ones or are you one of the weak ones? It's depending on the category, are, where are you on this sliding scale? Because there's a whole lot of areas where I am very strong and probably stronger than most in this room. And there are a whole lot of areas where I am very weak and probably weaker than most in this room. And I need you. I need you. And there are areas where, I, where you need me. And that's the burden of community that Paul is calling the Corinthian church into. He goes on. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. He says you are, you're, you're actively working to undo the effects of the cross in your brother or sister when you don't choose to love them, when you choose in this moment, in every, you know, each of these moments as they come and, we, and, and they happen all the time around us, where we have a choice between walking into the rights and freedoms we have as a Christian or at least taking a moment to think about the people around us, the others around us, and going, will this help them flourish? Will this help them thrive? Will this, will this further their pursuit of Christ? And Paul puts it in very ultimate terms, saying, listen, this is literally the reason for which Christ died, so that they might be saved from these things. And when you choose your rights over their good, you are actively working to undo the effects of the cross in them. Or at the very least, are not participating with Christ in that kind of transformation process. So, so when you sin against them in this way, you're not just sinning against them, you're not just working against them, but you're actually sinning against Christ because you're working against his purposes for them. So he goes, listen, yeah. Theologically, you're right. The food sacrifice to idols is nothing. But practically, who cares about your rights when it butts up against loving another brother or sister. That over and over and over, as important as our freedom in Christ is, the freedom that Christ purchased for us, it should always serve love. It should always serve love. Uh, I have a friend who is going through a really difficult time in his marriage. And he and I uh, have talked over the last couple of years on a pretty regular basis, trying to talk him through kind of how to respond. His wife uh, made a very poor decision, and he is kind of bearing the burden of it. And over and over and over, we've basically had the same conversation about 12 times where he goes, but she did. And I said, yes, she did. And now you have a choice. 
You have a choice to kind of cling to your rights and demand your rights, or you have the choice to make to love your wife. This is the choice that you have. Which choice are you gonna make? And so far, by God's grace, he has chosen to love his wife and not demand his rights, but it's a touch and go situation. And every time I talk to him, I think, man, that's a hard situation, and, and I'm so glad I'm not in it, and yet I am in it every single day because I have that same choice over and over and over to demand my freedom and my rights or to love the people who are around me. And so often those two things are in conflict. Paul says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Do you understand how serious that is? Paul is willing to go vegan for his brothers. Are you kidding me? I'm not that good a Christian. I'm sorry. I wouldn't do it for you. But Paul would. That's why he wrote the Bible. The only way we do this is if we understand that Christ did it for us. And if we are constantly reminded that Jesus did this exact same thing for us in the most ultimate way. In Philippians 2, verse 1, Paul builds on this same idea saying, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Did you hear that? Do nothing from rival, let me, let me back up. He says, if, if you have any encouragement in Christ, if any love, if any compassion, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, please be of the same mind, of the same love, full accord, one mind, do nothing but from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, which just means to be held on to, not that he couldn't reach it, but that he wouldn't let go of it, that he did on our behalf but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what Christ did for us. He laid down all of his rights and became nothing so that we might live. And he has simply said to us, go and do likewise. And at every moment, every, every point in every day, and it happens a hundred times a day where we want to cling, we want to grasp to some right that we might remember that Christ himself let go and embrace death, real death. He, he, he let go of the divinity and the honor and the, all of that in heaven. Not that he ceased to, become, ceased to be God in any way, but 
let go of, of the, the eternity of honor in heaven and all of the rights and privileges that go along with that, let go of that, and came and was born in a barn to poor people, lived a, a marginalized life, and then was murdered on a cross so that we might live. He laid down everything for us. He chose love over rights in the most ultimate way so that we might choose a little bit of love over a little bit of rights over and over and over. That's the burden of community. That's the, that's the gospel-formed vision for our rights and freedoms, that yes, we have them, and they should be the first thing we lay down if it is possible to love another person. Let's pray. Jesus, you did, to the greatest degree, what you ask us to do to a far lesser degree. I pray, Lord, that each and every time that we would be tempted to cling to some right at the expense of another person, that you would remind us, I gave up everything and died for you. Not to shame us, not to heap guilt upon us, but to remind us of the path that you walked that is the path to flourishing. That this is the path to life, not even just for us, but for all of those around us. That you gave us the example of the kind of life that leads to more life. It multiplies life. May we walk out that example. Empower us by your spirit to do what we could never do on our own. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, as always, um, we'll transition into a time of response, and we do this in a couple of different ways. Um, we're going to take communion. We'll give our offering here in a bit. Um, we'll have time of Q&A. So if you have questions, you can text those in now. But before we do any of that, um, each and every week we take a, a minute or two to just have quiet reflection. We get so little quiet in our lives that we are just bombarded with ideas and information and words and pictures, and we very rarely get a chance to hear something and actually let it get deep on us. And so we want to provide that space here uh, for the next minute or two. I will come back up here in a moment, and we'll transition to Q&A. So uh, let's bow our heads together. All right. Uh, take some questions. We have uh, four questions on here that are fantastic. Um, I'll start with this one. Um, if the rich are to care for the poor and strong care for the weak, how do we reconcile the contentious, contentious stance the religious right is taking against refugees seeking asylum? <laughs> it's an easy one to start with. Um, uh, first, I would say I uh, don't care to speak on behalf of the religious right uh, and uh, wouldn't want to do that in any way, um, first. Second, I will say um, I, I wouldn't also want to talk about specific uh, policy issues and ways in which we can best serve certain people. That's way above my pay grade. I will say this. The contentious stance the religious right is taking against refugees seeking asylum is, in my opinion, grossly unbiblical and evil. This is exactly what the scriptures talk about, that the strong care for the weak, 
that we protect the poor, that we create space at sacrifice, at great sacrifice of our own for the sake of other people. So uh, the, the contentious stance and the attitude and the perspective and the, the means by which many Christian people have talked about this is, in my opinion, uh, indefensible. The specific ways in which we go about caring for those people, again, that's, uh, I'm not going to talk about that. But absolutely our posture as Christians should be to care for the weak and care for the poor at great cost to ourselves. Um, and to do that uh, as well at a national level. So that's one. We'll get easier. Um, how would you encourage someone to courageously and humbly acknowledge their weakness in a space where the dominant Christian culture isn't bothered? For instance, drinking is problematic for them, but not for their small group. Uh, shows and movies they watch are super impactful, but their friends do Game of Thrones parties, etc. Great question. And it dovetails with one of the other ones. Um, I do think... Uh, I would just simply echo Paul and say a version of the same thing we just read. One, I do think it is the responsibility of those uh, who are strong, and, and sometimes that means organizationally strong, meaning leaders uh, who have been given power over a small group or whatever the case may be, um, to be thoughtful and sensitive and compassionate and, and you know, make sure that they're creating an environment that everyone can participate in. Um, so I do think the responsibility of that does fall on leadership. Um, if it's an informal group of friends, you know, there are de facto leaders in every group of friends. Uh, I do think those who would be kind of recognize themselves as strong need to be proactive and figure out, okay, how can we do things that everyone can participate in that is, is going to lead to everyone's flourishing? I would also say the other side of it, as Paul said, that if you are in that situation where drinking or Game of Thrones or whatever the case may be is a particular area of weakness or need or whatever, you have to say something. You have to make that need known and do so in a way, and this is where I, I think it can go wrong, is that we, we take what ought to be a humble posture of needing help from someone else and turning that into a judgmental condemnation of other people's freedoms, which is exactly what Paul was just condemning, right? So there's a way in which we could address the situation to say, uh, hey, I need to talk to you as a leader. Hey, I don't think we should be watching these things because I know that there's people in this group who you know, really struggle with this stuff. That's not helpful for anyone. Coming to a leader and saying, hey, I, I need to ask. I need to admit this is an area of particular weakness for me. And if we are going to do this as a group, I just, you got to know this is really hard. And this is, this is an area of temptation and weakness. And I need your help. Could we please think of something else? I would love to be part of figuring out how to do something else, right? Besides drinking and watching Game of Thrones, right? Which, yeah is probably that combination is probably a whole nother thing. But uh, the key there is uh, that we ask with a humble posture that is an admission of need and an admission of weakness, not a uh, kind of condescending condemnation of them. Uh, number three, 
What do you think would be a good example of the idle food situation uh, today in Seattle? And, and I, uh, I wanted to pair these two together because I do think media is the most obvious example of this. Um, I, I think kind of no matter where you're at on, on, uh, in terms of your opinion on this issue, the truth is that our culture's media consumption has changed radically in the last, even just the last 20 years uh, of, of my kind of sentient life. Um, things have become way more sexualized, way more graphic, way more violent, way more everything. Uh, and that kind of movement, especially that quickly, has massive cultural implications, and I, I, I think it's foolish for us to ignore that. So I do think that media consumption in general, I think shows, uh, like Game of Thrones, make for great examples of things that I think do require a pretty significant amount of maturity and strength to be able to handle without temptation. Uh, and I, I, but I think media more broadly, the way in which we engage on Instagram and Twitter and Snapchat and all of the things I've never heard of because I'm 40, uh, the way in which we do that, I think is uh, a, a really pressing issue for the church. I also think it's a really great opportunity for the church to, uh, to, to demonstrate another way to engage those platforms. Uh, so media would be my best example. Um, okay, last question. What's the balance between bearing with the weak and becoming all things to all men that by all means we might save some? especially when in a situation where both people are present at the same time. Um, what I, a situation I can imagine that this might uh, relate to would be, um, you have an opportunity to go out to happy hour or go out to a bar with some non-Christian friends and, and be with them and enjoy their company, uh, but there's also kind of a member of that group who struggles with alcohol, and so that creates a tension point. Um, I'd say a couple things. One, uh, always, and, and, and I think I can say always, uh, always uh, defer to the weaker brother. Always. Care for them. As a, as a person who is strong, always care for the weaker brother. I think, again, the responsibility for the weak has been given to the strong. The responsibility for the powerless has been given to the powerful. And, and so I think that is always our responsibility. I think if um, we have situations like that where you know, there is this tension, uh, I think some of that tension is perceived more than it is real. And I think we can be more creative than, well, if we can't go to the bar, what do I do? Nah, there's other things you can do. Putt-putt is a great example uh, of a thing. Do people still do that? Is that still a thing? It's probably a hipster version of putt-putt these days. Um, I think we can be more creative, and I don't think this tension is an ultimate one. I think that there are ways in which we can um, care for our weaker brother and sister and uh, engage our non-Christian friends and enter into their lives with them. Sometimes that might mean doing it at two separate moments. Sometimes that might mean uh, doing putt-putt, um, but being creative in the ways in which we engage with those relationships. Good questions. Um, I hope that this, this Q&A thing has been helpful. We've done it for a couple of weeks in a row. The intention is to keep doing it and uh, see where it goes until uh, we either get no questions or just dumb ones. Uh, then, um, then, then maybe we'll stop.
Um, but so far, so good.